Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casella, and with me today is special guest Kevin Wall. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Of course. Always happy to, to, to bring on uh, cross-country and Olympic sport aficionado Kevin. Uh, Dan had some, uh, some car issues he had to tend to, so we, uh, we turned to the next man up, so to speak. And uh, right. Kevin, has, uh, how are things in uh, Onondaga County? Hot. We're in the midst of a heat wave here in Syracuse, so um, supposed to break in a couple of days, but 90 degrees. So uh, just for all those people that say Syracuse is a terrible place, you wouldn't want to be there. This is proving them wrong. Definitively. I, uh, I know we, uh, we're dealing with the back end of uh, quote-unquote June gloom here in L.A., where it is a, uh, a freezing quote-unquote 70 degrees. I think we'd trade some of that with you right now. So. <laughs> well, at least out here, we get the benefit, like, you know, being uh, close to the water, at least we get the benefit of it never really getting above like 85 or so. Yeah, we're in the midst of not only heat, but humidity, too. So that's a it's like August here right now. So uh, be welcoming, I'm sure, for all the football players that are back on campus. Yeah. I guess we'll talk about football. I know you kind of alluded to that there. Um, I'm writing an article as we speak about this. The Patriot League uh, brass mentioned on Monday that they uh, they want players for uh, sports that end by no- by the end of November to arrive at the same time as other students. That means that potentially you know you'd have football teams and players arriving on campus in late August for a season that starts in late August, um, according to the NCAA Division One Council. Uh, that's not allowed. You need six weeks of prep for seasons that start in the fall. Uh, so that would mean you're showing up in July uh, for, for an August start. Uh, not ideal for Syracuse's week three opponent, Colgate, who was supposed to be the home opener for the refurbished dome. Um, obviously, Colgate and other schools have kind of not necessarily uh, bought into this just yet. According to statements they've made to press, it seems that they uh, they would rather not comment just yet. And I think that they don't want to necessarily sell out their entire uh, non-conference schedule. Um, if you're Colgate or, or any school in the Patriot League, uh, those dollars are pretty important. Uh, those dates against, you know, both nearby foes like Syracuse is for for Colgate as well as Western Michigan, um, who Colgate also travels to um, the non-conference schedule. Um, definitely critical uh, games for them and their athletic department getting those paydays. Um, Kevin, you being a little bit closer to the area and, and, and obviously knowing, um, you know, what you know about, you know, the non-conference schedules and Colgate in particular, like, how do you feel, how do you feel this is going to go? Do you think that, that this ends up getting walked back? Do you think the Colgate ends up going, uh, Colgate and other Patriot League teams end up going online only? Um, this obviously could throw a real wrench in, in, in the plans for Syracuse already, even just even months before the season starts. Sure. One of the things that Colgate has not come out and stated whether or not they would have on-campus classes this fall. So unlike Syracuse and a lot of other schools, which are making arrangements to bring back students a week early, um, in SU's case, with classes ending on campus by Thanksgiving, and then students not coming back until January, Colgate hasn't um, announced their plan. So I think there's one aspect of from the academic side with the Patriot League schools 
what they've said academically. Then we have these other issues with athletics. Now, the first ruling said that they wouldn't have overnight travel, which would seemingly allow Colgate to bus to play Syracuse and bus back after the game. But as you mentioned, it's that six-week period of practice, which if they're not reporting before the semester begins, they wouldn't meet that. Um, there has to be an answer soon because right now Syracuse would need an opponent for the Dome. Um, and if they walked it back and switched and moved the bye week, you'd be talking about Syracuse opening with two road games, a bye week, and then going back on the road again, um, which the two road games to start the year is less than ideal, but we know that that's partly because of the dome renovations and allowing some extra time there. But opening a season, especially after last year's disappointment with three straight road games, is probably something that Dino Babers wants to avoid. And, you know, Syracuse starts looking for a replacement opponent. That's going to be a huge impact for Colgate's revenue stream. And so I'm sure that they don't want that. Um, to happen. So I would imagine we would probably get a little bit more clarity in the next couple of days because I think someone's going to have to make that decision. Um, looking at who Patriot League teams had in that week, the other options um, which might become available for Syracuse would then be Columbia, Harvard, or William and Mary. And so I don't know if any of those scenarios are places that Syracuse would look. I think Columbia might be a first option because then you'd be talking about another bus trip. But uh, less than ideal, obviously, to be almost in July and be worrying about your week three opponent. Yeah, and obviously, you know, th- this one at least is through no fault of Syracuse's. Um, and, and it's usually the case where, you know, SU messes up scheduling uh, royally and ends up having to deal with last minute additions. In this case, uh, you know, Syracuse can't really do anything about the Patriot League or, or coronavirus concerns. Um, I know like Columbia and Yale would be a little bit tougher um, just because I know the Ivy League usually tries to avoid D1, uh, well, FBS games. Um, they make exceptions here and there, but by and large, you know, the Ivy teams do try to avoid, uh, you know, getting batted around by, by FBS teams and especially Power 5 teams. Um, I would say William & Mary is probably the most likely um, opponent, though I'm sure uh, they also don't necessarily want to head up to the Dome just to get knocked around. Um, and I'm sure they already have I mean, not looking at their schedule right now. I'm sure William and Mary already has, you know, like VTech or uh, or Virginia um, on the slate for 2020, and they're at least a, a much closer. Um, actually, no, they're headed to Stanford. Ooh, uh, which I'm sure they'd love to postpone that one and uh, and, and head to the dome instead. Yeah, you know, then it comes into what Syracuse is going to have to pay to get someone. So would they? whatever their fee they're paying Colgate, I would imagine is less than what they would bring another school who's flying and spending a, a night in Syracuse. Um, so from a cost standpoint, especially at this time where we don't know if there's going to be fans in the stands and athletic departments are concerned about revenues and budgets, uh, certainly not something that Syracuse wants to do is open the checkbook to, to fill a game. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, maybe this is one of those situations where they look to postpone it um, and, or change the date. Can, would the ACC allow them to push it back to the end of the regular season? And, you know, Syracuse could make the decision of whether they need to play the game or not. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, interesting scenarios that could play out around this, uh, depending on how flexible people want to be within both leagues. 
Yeah, and I mean, obviously, like this requires, you know, some um, ACC and some FBS um, permissions too. I mean, this possibility maybe that if they held it off, I mean, and you look at the schedule now, this actually says that Syracuse uh, would not be able to face Colgate, you know, if they tacked on a game for the first week of December, potentially. Um, and based on, you know, the fact that SU is trying to get everybody off campus by the end of November, um, I would think it's unlikely that they would add a game at the end. So you'd be looking at, uh, maybe an 11 game season for Syracuse eliminating their easiest opponent in Colgate. Um, I would assume they wouldn't be the only team that'd be in this type of scenario, um, based on the way things are trending. So perhaps, you know, SU if they end up five and six, uh, could get a waiver, uh, and, and be a bowl eligible. However, you know, you and I have talked about this, uh, in different articles and, and on podcasts, um, in the past, I would think that, that if, that if coronavirus concerns, um, and, and campus safety concerns and travel concerns for conferences this serious, um, especially right now, never mind, you know, later on in the year, we get into flu season and all. Um, I don't, I don't think bowl eligibility will matter much, um, save for the top teams anyway. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, there's so much uncertainty right now that, uh, you know, all we can do is speculate. Um, I just, uh, I think at this point, you know, there, I wouldn't rule anything out. I think, flexibility is going to have to be the key in the name of the game uh, when it comes to NCA and conference rules and, and even what some of the schools want to do. So if Colgate can't play the game week three, you could see it left as a, you know, if needed basis. Um, you know, if the situation arose where Syracuse was sitting at five and six and they needed that extra win for bowl eligibility, they, the schools may agree to play it um, depending on where we are in November. Um, or like you said, there could be a waiver scenario. I think, um, you know, there's going to have to be some clarity from these leagues. It seems like the Patriot League, even though it seems a little harsh, was trying to provide that for their member schools. And and so we'll kind of wait and see. And it's interesting because news came out of the ACC that there's going to be a new sort of uh, governing structure with Kent Siverud, who's going to be in charge. And it seems like college presidents are going to have a little bit more say in the conference. So um, which could be interesting how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, there's just so much more left to go here. And really, based on how things are evolving, based on how, you know, a lot of, um, you know, reopen um, kind of phased approaches have not seemed to work necessarily as planned um, around the country. And given how many, like, players are testing positive when they return, I mean, I don't think anyone kid, kid themselves into thinking that, no one would test positive upon returning, especially at schools like, you know, like an SU or, or, or other um, private schools. Um, also, like just larger, uh, you know, football factories that recruit talent from around the country. Like, I don't think anyone thought that they were going to be able to bring everyone back in June and suddenly have like absolutely no issues and be able to return to camp and all that. But at the same time, I think seeing like Clemson, who had like 23 cases uh, of, you know, positive cases or, or at least people, you know, in quarantine right now. Um, and other schools presenting, you know, eight to 10 cases at minimum. Like, I I think, I don't think schools and coaches and programs are necessarily prepared for that. Um, or at least like the, the uh, you know, PR that comes with that. Uh, and I think it's definitely causing a little bit of panic, um, e- even if things will subside once everyone hopefully, you know, quarantines or covers and then um, we don't see any other issues this summer. Yeah, I would agree. I think that that probably the expectation was in these smaller pods, you might see one or two 
you know, athletes on a team uh, or maybe a support staff, a manager or something where they could be isolated and quarantined and you could prevent an outbreak on campus. Uh, but the numbers that you saw at Clemson and LSU and Kansas State uh, throw that a little bit into, into a bigger concern. You know, I assumed that if nothing else, we would have college football played in front of either empty stadiums or students and bands because of the TV money and that no school could forego canceling the season um, at this point. But you have to question then now what happens with the te ongoing testing and how teams are going to handle this when they welcome a student body back to campus. You know, are they going to put a bubble around these football teams and where they don't leave athletic facilities and they only take online classes and they're asked not to do any sort of socializing uh, with the larger student body? Um, you know, sort of like the NBA was proposing with their Disney bubble, I think programs are going to try to do that as best possible. But as we saw in both Clemson and LSU, it seemed like those outbreaks were simply college students being college students. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, college students being college students is a challenge. There's just the fact, I mean, I even see around here, like, neighborhood-wise, like, and there's plenty of people that, that aren't wearing masks in certain situations, but by and large, the people that aren't in public and in certain spaces and are hanging out with friends or people, you know, under age 18, um, obviously these players are in 18 to 22 range, but, like, stuff happens and, and, and people aren't necessarily, like, even the most responsible person, it just takes one potential slip up, um, you know, for for a, a possible infection. I think that's really the issue here is that, like, no matter how careful you are, it really just is, does just take one, um, you know, random random and not even intentional error. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm starting to see I'm starting to see some doubts, at least for me, creep in a little bit about about, you know, returning to college football and and. and I, especially at a place like Syracuse where, you know, the team plays indoors, I'm finding it hard to believe that they're going to be able to, you know, host several opponents, be able to guarantee everybody's safety, be able to have any fans in the stands at all. Um, definitely seems, definitely seems less than ideal. Obviously we don't have to like dive too, I don't think we have to dive any further in necessarily, but um, I, I think what we thought we knew maybe a week or two ago has definitely been uh, cast into some doubt now. Right. Yep. And I still wouldn't su be surprised if schools are thinking about some sort of delay or looking at overlapping into the spring semester, like we talked about back in March. And people kind of poo-pooed that idea, but I would, wouldn't be surprised if any option, in all options are on the table now. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think at this point, like we've, we've reached, we've reached not, not a point of no return, but we've definitely reached a point where Things need to be corrected. Things need to be um, like we need to start seeing plans in place. I think from football, I think, you know, basketball seemed to move fairly quickly. I think hockey moved quickly to some extent. I think you saw, you know, less like contact driven sports like golf and, and, uh, and NASCAR, uh, you know, put plans in play and start getting athletes back on the, the field of play. But I find that football has largely um, you know, pro and college is really kind of like wipe their hands of the issue to some extent and say, Hey, we'll figure it out. Well, like, you know, we're, we're one tragedy away from the entire season just being canceled. So, so realistically um, you would think that maybe all these positive tests at least spur some sort of action 
um, in a hurry to get a real um, and tangible rollout plan um, in place that, that, that ensures there's some sort of season. Definitely agree with you there. So I guess changing pace a little bit, um, something that is like, you know, COVID, uh, like adjacent, um, ACC network, just like every other sports, uh, focused network on television has had to pivot what they're doing, um, on TV without live games, uh, without a whole lot to talk about, um, in terms of like recent results. I think that like while ESPN received praise for, you know, how it, I think picked up, you know, Korean baseball and how it had the last dance and how it's had some other 30 for 30s that rolled out. Um, I know esports has appeared a ton uh, on ESPN networks and Fox Sports 1. Realistically, I think a lot of sports networks have really kind of showed just how shackled they are to um, a very kind of static way of thinking. I think that, um, you know, ESPN has, has been creative. They've done some things that they have a lot more to talk about um, around off the field issues and I guess just off the field uh, concerns, but like realistically, there's only so much of that, that, that viewers will, will participate in. And at some point, um, you know, you need to kind of give people another reason to tune in. You know, I really rarely watch ESPN save those like very like special kind of one-off TV moments, like the last dance um, and the ACC network, I think just like SEC network on um, the big 10 network too, like have really kind of, Let's say the Big Ten at least has some specials and things like that, focus on certain teams. But I think the ACC and SEC network have really kind of um, failed in this regard, where they've they've given fans no real reason to tune in um, past the first month or so. When, once you get through the the big games, um, and you just end up with this uh, this very kind of boring and, and and stale slate of the same games or like a theme week where it's like sort of a theme, but it's the same game twice in a day. There's only so much programming. There's only so much you can say about these games that happened already. Like, I mean, I I know you've been a long time proponent of this. Like there was so, there was so much that even with people remote that you'd be able to put on TV around Syracuse and around all the, and the other 14 schools in the ACC that would have made the ACC network a far more compelling watch. Right. And so this past weekend they did a Vince Carter day and that's great. And, my question would be why not in March did you send something out to every school and said, pick a male and a female athlete that you would highlight and promote, you know, pick X number of games, bring that person, people that know them um, involved with interviews, uh, filler that we can do and do some sort of promotion. And yeah, maybe there isn't a huge market for it, but like you said, you're trying to expand that reach. So Let's say Syracuse did something different. Now, Dwight Freeney's on the College Football Hall of Fame ballot. We knew that was going to happen if we had a Dwight Freeney special. And you can get Dwight Freeney, and you could get Chandler Jones, and you could get Kendall Coleman or Alton Robinson, people who played the position talking about Dwight Freeney at Syracuse, talking about his pro career, and, and doing something like that. I, um, you know, as the Olympic sports guy, we're heading up on the fifth year fifth anniversary this November of the cross country men's cross country and women's field hockey winning national titles in the same weekend. So where's something about that, the, you know, the network, they have access to these, to these contests and you don't need to show maybe the entire field hockey game. That's fine if you don't want to do that, but boil it down into a, a 30 minutes or an hour special 
where you intersperse in interviews or you do something remote where you get athletes from these teams to talk about what was going on, what was going through their mind. You know, we had Justin Knight on a pod, sportscaster. He's been on a million podcasts. He loves talking about Syracuse. He'd be more than happy to go on with Matt Parker, Brian Higgins, and recap that national championship that the team won or his individual national championship or one of his double-digit ACC championships. I mean, there's a guy, I just I just filled you a day of Justin Knight content and, you know, in two minutes. And so I think there's a lot that could have been done. It's disappointing that, you know, we knew as soon as the ACC tournament ended that there was going to be this gap. Uh, there wasn't going to be baseball. There wasn't going to be lacrosse. And it just feels like a great opportunity has been wasted by the conference the network and the schools themselves to really do some great promotional events. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like ultimately, you know, any conference network is a, is basically a, a commercial for the schools and, and the teams that, that, that play as representatives of those schools. And it just seems like, you know, having, having this sort of, I mean, like what today or tomorrow, like one of the games, like you see it twice in a day is like Clemson versus Western Carolina, like softball. I mean, there should definitely be softball focused and there should definitely be days dedicated to certain non-revenue sports, things like that. But like, are you really going to tell me that, that like showing, you know, two to two and a half hours of Clemson versus Western Carolina softball um, is really valuable to Clemson, to the ACC, to anyone involved when, when there's like so many, you know, um, intra-conference matchups and, and so many players and coaches and personalities and traditions and other things. Um, that you can focus on just in softball alone, never mind the other uh, sports that the league sponsors just seems. And, and again, it's not even just like the recent stuff. I mean, the ACC has been broadcasting games on, on ESPN for decades, um, you know, dating back to the, the Big East days for a lot of these teams. Like th- th- there's there's like four decades worth of inventory here um, that you're able to mine. And just it's it's mind blowing, even like on a Syracuse level seeing us repeatedly get shown, you know, the same one, nothing Syracuse Colgate women's soccer win, or, uh, or, or just being shown the Hobart game for Syracuse men's lacrosse, um, or, or really like getting close to nothing on the women's lacrosse team. Uh, despite the fact that, you know, they've had some great games over the years and even in the last six months, like I, I'm, I'm beyond puzzled as to, as to how we ended up here and, and how the league really expects to make money off of this network. Um, when when a golden opportunity like this has been kind of like you know swung at and missed so hard absolutely and uh, you know i know that they've brought the packer and durham show back now but they were off for a couple months i mean there are some very talented people involved with the network uh that were probably home with a lot of time and a lot of availability and it's just disappointing that again like you said you keep recycling the same things uh, when you've got so much content available, so many stories that you could tell, and a great opportunity for the conference and the schools to really push themselves into a bigger spotlight than would normally exist. Agreed. ACC, if you're listening, and I'll be writing something about this myself just because I'm like getting pretty annoyed about it. Um, hopefully, we're somebody... available to consult. And we are available to consult <laughs> for money or swag. Right. Uh, Kevin, I know, uh, I know you're not usually as much of a drinker as, uh, as Dan and I, but, um, it is halftime. So, uh, wanted to see what have you been drinking? 
Actually, it's uh, been Sam Sam Adams summer ale season for me. So that's my uh, kind of go-to because we haven't been going out anywhere. Uh, picked that up and uh, working through slowly through that right now, but excited to get out now that places are opening up around here and to start connecting with some friends and, and sampling some more local brews. Nice. Yeah, we're starting to see a little bit of opening. I know uh, one of the brewers around here, Smug City, that I talk about a lot, actually uh, expanded their uh, seating into the parking lot, uh, which I thought was pretty smart. And they have picnic uh, tables and, and umbrellas and a lot more just like set up to at least make it more safe and, and accommodating for folks. So might end up over there at some point. We'll see for right now. I have still yet to be anywhere um, really since uh, since like early March. But better safe than sorry, at least for me right now. A uh, couple of my beer picks for the week had uh, from Highland Park, a uh, hazy double IPA, world champ. Um, really good hazy. I'm not a big hazy fan, but uh, I think Highland Park does it better than most um, around here. Uh, had Mosaic, Citra, and Big Secret uh, hops uh, featured. I felt like it was just interesting, good drink. Um, finished my last can of uh, Good Green from Highland Park, just a West Coast IPA. So grabbed a West Coast IPA from Chapman Crafted down in Orange County. Uh, Welcome to Citra. Had a couple of those. Had a Chapman Crafted Pills. Um, and also had uh, from Celador Ales um, up in the, uh, like, North Hollywood. Not exactly where they are. I think North Hills area. Um, grabbed a Gozesk uh, Nectarine. It's just a really good sour. And uh, that was my, uh, that was how I capped my father's day. You know, most most fathers this year, I felt, you know, didn't really have much to do, but uh, my main request was just being able to drink a beer in peace. So mission accomplished. Nice. Always have to celebrate those wins. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you have somebody under the age of two in the house, it, uh, it's not the easiest victory to pick up, but figured it out. <laughs> no, it's not the easiest, and that's why you celebrate them. <laughs> so, uh, Kevin, as, uh, as you were informed before the show started, uh, Along with Syracuse news uh, during the off season, we usually uh, around June start picking up the uh, the non well not non conference but group of five and then uh, power five previews uh, going down the line and just you know I mean Dan and I are, are big fans of the, the the whole picture of college football. I know you enjoy you know a good uh, stacked college football Saturday as well. So today we're talking Mountain West. Um, that's everybody's final warning. Uh, <laughs> Guess we can start with Boise State. Uh, we're not going to run through everybody necessarily, uh, but did want to at least give people a, a clearer picture of of what you know each league in, in, in the in the country looks like. So, the Mountain West. We start with Boise State. I actually think this Boise State team is not necessarily what it's been in the past. Um, I think Boise in general lately is just it's not that they've been bad by any means. I just think you're seeing like a slight return to the rest of the group. And I think part of that, unfortunately, is a result of uh, most of the mountain, the rest of the mountain West kind of uh, not sucking wind, but just failing to live up to potential. And that kind of ends up discrediting what Boise's doing, even if it is impressive that they've competed at the top of this league for so long. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the interesting piece you mentioned. The last part is their consistency. And so when you talk about being able to turn over coaches and still maintain a level of success. And even if it's 
a step below the P5. You know, Boise's just been a solid program for a long time now. And it is unfortunate that the rest of the league has sort of tailed off and that certainly hampers their sort of national standing. Um, but they're, they're one of those schools that I think for people who aren't college football playoff, you know, bound, you know, the goals aren't going to be the playoff. You know, their program that you look at, and I look at Syracuse would be like, hey, that's a program where if you can model that sort of consistent success in seven or eight wins, uh, that's a good program. And, and doing it with coaches that are, you know, transitioning and, and turning over as frequently. Um, it's a nice sort of template that when Syracuse gets around to looking for a next coach, um, you know, you hope they've built up a program where you can slide the next person in and they can keep that going. Yeah, I mean, Boise's kind of figured it out. Like, and I, I was up in Boise um, last summer for for a few days and got to walk around campus a bit. And really, like, was and I know I told you guys, you know, in the uh, the, the uh, fabled noon slack, but really just impressive facilities, just really impressive like fan support. The city really gets behind them. And then obviously, like, they also understand the merch game better than most. Um, and, and I, you know, credit them a ton for that. And, and I think that you know. Boise has figured something out. Um, and I don't necessarily know how replicable it is. I think that Syracuse could take some notes. I think a lot of other schools could take some notes too about how to at least create a culture that doesn't necessarily rely on a coach. Um, well, singular coach and more just, you know, an, an idea and, and, and a staff um, identity and things like that. So, I mean, I hope we don't lose Dino Babers anytime soon, but if for some reason it happens, um, good or bad, I hope that, uh, that, the uh, handoff is as clean as it's been at Boise. Um, really, I think Boise, you know, but like most teams, I, I think they're going to go as, as fast as their uh, their quarterback can. Uh, Hank Bachmeyer uh, is definitely a player who um, is going to, to lead this Broncos team um, as far as they can go. I think his numbers last year don't necessarily show a guy um, – who's you know, going to be in that same conversation as a player like maybe a Kellen Moore um, or others who have suited up for the Broncos. But um, he also seems like someone with uh, some potential. I think I'm not going to doubt a guy's freshman numbers too much, um, if only because Boise had such, had such a you know, strong track record of, uh, of recruiting good quarterbacks. Right. He won at Florida State last year, and, and they get Florida State at home this year. Uh, so, you, you know, that's a that's an interesting game for Syracuse fans to see kind of what this year's Florida State team is going to look like, too, early on and relatively early in the season. So, um, you know, anytime you have a freshman that can go in and, and win on the road in that sort of at environment, and we know Florida State wasn't great last year, um, you know, it's going to be a good sign for a school like Boise, you know, and you're going to be looking to compete in your not only for your conference title, but for that New Year's uh, six full slot and to know you've got at least two more years, you know, with a, a, a poised quarterback, always a good sign in college. Agreed. So I guess, Kevin, who do you think is Boise's biggest challenge in the mountain? Um, Utah State and Wyoming both had solid seasons last year. Uh, New Mexico, I think, is just kind of doomed to struggle for now. Colorado State could look good eventually. Um, I, I think Steve Adazio wasn't the worst hire. It's also not really an inspired one. Um, and I think this group should know how we usually feel about uh, about Adazio and what he yeah. did at Boston College. 
We had some Wyoming and Utah State and maybe Air Force um, seem like the most likely teams to uh, to really start pressing Boise. Yeah, I think Air Force is interesting. I'm I'm a sucker for the option attack offense. Uh, Air Force was one of my favorite teams, NCAA football teams to play with to run that offense. And they, uh, you know, Boise schedules, Boise goes Georgia Southern, Air Force, Florida State. So at Air Force in week two is an interesting challenge. And, and you know, you if Air Force can get that home win, that gives them a big jump up. Um, you know, Utah is going to, Utah State's going to replace uh, Jordan Love. And it's too bad that you don't have Dan here to talk about him uh, as the Packers fan. But, um, you know, so that's going to be a, a a difficult losing a first round NFL talent at quarterback is going to be interesting to see how they can rebound. And Adazio, you know, probably in a couple of years, we'll have Colorado state to a solid, you know, he'll get offensive linemen. So you'll know they'll be able to run the ball. Um, you know, his conservative style, they, they want to keep games, you know, close. And I think he'll, he can find some success. Um, but I don't think immediately, I think that'll, that'll take a little time. And even though he's uninspired, for a program, I think, you know, you could do worse than having a guy who's going to be able to make you competitive in games. Um, Wyoming is going to be an interesting team, I think, for Boise. Uh, you know, the, that's what's kind of fun about the Mountain West to me of, of the next, the, the G6 group there. They, they play some interesting football, and on the East Coast, you, you often get overlooked because of the time of games. But uh, a lot of interesting style clashes that you see and, and some definitely some games that are kind of fun to watch from a, just a fan perspective. Yeah. I mean, in general, like I, I do enjoy, like there's a lot of reasons I enjoy being out here. One of them is, uh, is just the fact that, you know, I, I get to see these games at a reasonable hour and I do get to watch a good amount of mountain West and pac 12. I mean, also have family connections to the mountain West uh, with most of my in-laws going to San Diego state but in general, like, yeah, I think the stylistic clashes, the fact that you have, I think, so, so like, the Mountain West in particular, like, it seems like they're not rising coaches that are going to be gone in a couple of years, the way you see it, the CUSA and, uh, and the MAC and, and American Athletic Association uh, Conference. I think, you know, with the Mountain West, it's, there was an interesting run of hires where it's guys like, you know, Calhoun or guys like Craig Bull. Um, at Wyoming, guys who who showed up in new places and now, like you know, five, four or five, six years in, um, are just like impressive um, coaches who've been able to redefine what what, what program success looks like. Uh, and 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 I think that that's that's fun. It provides you know a lot of you know a lot of a lot of year to year intrigue. It also makes it hard though at this point uh, to break through into kind of that, that upper crust. And I think Wyoming impressively. Um, has been able to become part of the top half, maybe even top third um, of the Mountain West, which is not an easy feat, especially when you have to share a division with Boise. Yeah, agreed. I think there's something to be said for the conference hiring coaches with head coaching experience. And even if it was at the FCS level, you know, you see you guys who have had winning programs, and so they know what it takes to build and they know what they're looking for. And I think they, you know, talk about forming an identity. I think that's one of the things that they kind of have. And so when you get the Mac and the, you know, AAC where they often hire the, you know, rising offensive coordinator, 
you know, of the day and bring that person in and then they might be gone in two years and they've recruited athletes for a certain style. And if you don't replace that exact style, you see the program step back. Um, you know, whereas the Mountain West is going for these older, more established coaches, um, you know, who just, who believe in a system. And I think for college football teams, when you don't have talent, I think they're, or don't have the level of talent that you see at the P5, um, if you have a system that you believe in and that you can execute, you can be competitive. And I think to me as a fan, that's what makes, you know, some of these matchups fun to watch and, and, and that contrast of styles. And, you know, if there's a school that could break through next, you would think it would be UNLV because of, you know, moving into the Raiders stadium and sharing that facility, the appeal of Vegas um, as a recruiting area. But boy, they they just can't seem to to get themselves to that next step. Yeah, I mean, you know, we now we're headed over to the to the West Division. I, I do think that, you know, UNLV. I think for years now, Dan and I have talked about this when we've done these sort of previews for years. Um, UNLV seems like they're primed for a jump. They they've long been in a situation where they could. Um, you know, they even tapped into local kind of high school uh, powerhouses to try and hire. Um, in a way that would give them more of that talent. I think it's still, it's, it's just, Nevada's not a talent rich state necessarily. Um, and on top of that, the most talented kids almost always go to Pac-12 schools. So, so now you have a, a problem where this is like something that Rutgers deals with a little bit too. Um, but maybe not to the same extent. Exactly. It, it, is that, you know, Nevada is, is talent poor for the most part. I think there's really, no, screw the Rutgers comparison. This is actually more of a Syracuse comparison, honestly, than anything else is that, you know, New York is, is talent questionable, as I've said before. And, and Syracuse seems like they usually are missing out on the, the very, very top guys. Um, I think, you know, to, I think for, for UNLV, obviously having a lesser brand than Syracuse, less success, uh, fewer resources, having that problem, having even less talent in Nevada than there is in New York, and then having, um, you know, SC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, um, even like the Texas schools that are easily able to go in there. Like there's, there are a lot of challenges for them uh, to be able to compete. And I think that, that the, you know, playing in the Raiders stadium gives them an opportunity, but I think it's still playing the long game. And I do think that the West division is still once again, kind of San Diego State's to lose. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, San Diego state with the, going back to Brady Hoke will be interesting to watch and, you know, the Syracuse connection where we thought Rocky Long was going to step down to come to Syracuse. And then the whole, remember when Zach Arnett was the Syracuse defensive coordinator? It feels <laughs> like that was like five years ago now at this point. But, um, you know, San Diego State, uh, I, obviously when I think of them, I think of when Marshall Falk was there. And I just think of that, you know, that all black uniform that they had and, and watching him run the ball. And obviously they're able to, have better access to the California talent. And when we talked about Syracuse and recruiting, and I think that's what some of these schools need to do in the Mountain West is in-state, they're not going to get the top players, but identifying that system and going to surrounding areas uh, where there's an appeal um, to pull from. Obviously, you get picked over in California, but there's still a lot of talent out there in, in California and Arizona and, and even stretching to Hawaii. Um, and so you've, you've got to just get people in place that know how to sell their vision and what they're looking for. And 
sometimes that takes patient administration, um, you know, who's not constantly looking to turn over every couple years, um, who understands it's going to take some time to get that footing. And I think that's a, a problem that you see across the country. And so, um, yeah, UNLV might be a little bit away from San Diego State, but uh, I think that division is going to be a little bit more interesting this year because of the turnover that they've had at San Diego State. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what the coaching change brings. I think actually handing off to Hoke is why they'll probably be all right. Hoke not only was on the staff um, under Long, but he also used to coach San Diego State. He understands what success looks like. I mean, realistically, I, I've said this for years um, here and elsewhere uh, that I, I just I don't really get why I don't really get why San Diego isn't like an absolute behemoth. I mean, part of it is because they they long shared a stadium in San Diego with the Chargers. Uh, they don't have an they at least at the moment don't have an on campus stadium, uh, and I think that you know that travel as other teams that have to travel can attest to. Like even UCLA, who has a storied history, like when you have to travel off campus and especially like in a crowded place like Southern California, like that can be prohibitive to to fans, to students, to staff, faculty, anyone who wants to kind of be part of that, like. I mean, we can both attest to, like, you know, having gone to Syracuse, you still being there. Like, there is something to be said for being able to walk, you know, out of your dorm room through the quad and, and, and you know, into the dome. And, and that's something that, like, it's not the end-all be-all, but it is something that is that is very advantageous. And, like, um, for, for San Diego, like, maybe it's not the only part of the cell, but 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 I think I think if, you, if you're forced to play in a mostly tarped, NFL stadium and, and, and at the time, like a, a beaten down NFL stadium. Um, I, I think that's going to hurt your cell. I think, you know, San Diego um, does have a really big alumni base. Um, they have a lot of, I think most of their alums do stay in the Southern California area, uh, which means that by and large, like fans are able to uh, show up. The thing is they don't have a lot of success to, to call on. I mean, um, really Brady Hope kind of ushered in the, this, this new era of, of, uh, of prolonged success um, for the Aztecs. And I think while they, they're able to cash in on it here and there, you've seen some great running backs um, at San Diego State. I think we're still waiting for the real connection from a skill player standpoint. Like I, I wouldn't think that San Diego State would have trouble uh, recruiting receivers and, and quarterbacks. And yet um, I do feel like they have one of the worst offenses in the country um, year in and year out while having one of the best defenses and just hoping that it works out. <laughs> Yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right. You should, uh, you feel like every school in California and Texas should have quarterbacks and receivers, right? At the very least. Um, and they may not be prototypical size or speed, but they should have people that come from high schools that are successful moving the ball and putting points on board. And you should just be able to transition that into to college. And, you know, even if you lose games uh, 49 to 35, you're not having any trouble scoring no matter who you're playing. Uh, so that is interesting. And I totally agree with the stadium on campus. Um, you know, I think when Syracuse was looking to move even just a couple miles down the hill, that that was a terrible idea. Um, sure, when you're winning, people will go out of their way to go to games. But if you're just okay, Every excuse for stu especially students not to show up uh, is one thing you want to avoid. And so there's definitely some some drawbacks to, to being off campus and being in something that you can't fill 
and selling that uh, obviously is something that we re relate to as well. So I think that's the, the challenge. And, um, you know, it also speaks to the difference in football in terms of basketball, in terms of we talk about level playing field and, and the money. And so it's just going to be hard for any school that's in the, you know, G6 to, to make that next jump, no matter how successful they are on the field, um, unless they can really push into that alumni support to get some huge contributions uh, to kind of narrow that gap. Yeah, I mean, again, like San Diego has like notable alumni and football elsewhere. Like, there, there's definitely like really. I mean, I obviously like you know it's about how much Marshall Falk wants to get involved too. But I feel like if I had Marshall Falk as an alum, um, I, I would probably be putting him to use a lot more. <laughs> just as a just, just as a rule, yeah. um, I mean, like, and you know, you know, like you and I obviously have vivid memories of Marshall Falk either as a college player or a pro player. Um, and, and a lot of these kids now don't necessarily realize just how great he was. I mean, the, just that highlight reel and, and, and the things he was able to do, um, you know, with football, I, I think that having him as an ambassador to bringing in, you know, elite skill talent, I, I, I think would really go a long way. And obviously San Diego's um, profile as, a, as an athletic program is far larger now um, than when it was when Falk was there. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And you would think that it would be an easy sell for recruits to, to go there, uh, especially when you think about other places that have been successful um, recruiting at that level. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, you could sell people on snow or you could sell people on being near the beach. Uh, I mean, it's a nice campus and, and, and it definitely looks like a Southern California campus, I guess. Yeah, I've never understood why why any school around here, at least, uh, struggles. But you know, these things happen, and there's a reason, I guess, why college football's history and, and present looks the way it does. Is that it's not as simple as um, who is the best location. Otherwise, uh, you'd probably see a very different uh, list of like top tier powers all the time. Yes, it's uh, building a real life dynasty is a lot harder than building one on NCAA football. <laughs> All right, Kevin. So I guess closing out here, um, do you just see a, a chalk Boise State versus San Diego State championship game, or do you think that, that somebody else could maybe rise up here? I, I think that would be what I would say right now. I would keep an eye on Wyoming, and for me, I would keep an eye on that Air Force-Boise game in September um, because that's going to be, I think, a big uh, big contest in that division. So um, right now I'd say Boise, San Diego State. That'd be my prediction. Yeah, I think that's mine as well. Again, I just think that everybody in the West uh, seems like they're like a year away from getting things together. Um, Hawaii has some work to do, uh, replacing the head coach. UNLV has a first-year head coach and some things to do. Um, I think Jay Norvell's done a good job at Nevada, but I don't think he's – like elevated them. I think Brent Brennan still has more work to do at San Jose state. And I think Fresno, like Fresno made a good hire in Kalen DeBoer, but I mean, they've done it before where they've left up from the basement into, uh, into conference contention. I just don't know if this is the year given what San Diego brings back on the defensive side. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's probably a lot of schools. I think next year, uh, this conference could be really wide open 
um, and very entertaining to watch how it how it shakes out. But um, like you said, I think it's going to take a little bit of time for some of these schools to be at that level. Agreed, agreed. Um, and then who do you think wins between San Diego and, uh, and Boise? Boy, it's hard to go against Boise. Um, I just think they're probably going to have a, enough of a, an offense. You know, I just think that I would give them the edge until you see San Diego State. Um, I think at this point, yeah, I'll go with Boise, I pick. Yeah, I'm going to go with Boise as well. I, I think Boise's still like a top 40-ish program. I think San Diego's probably more of a top 60-ish right now. And, and, and you know, we, we alluded to it earlier. Depends on what, what, what coaching does, um, you know, and, and if Hogue is as effective his second time around with SDSU as he was the first time. But I'm going to give Boise an edge, especially if they end up hosting the game. Right. Yeah, that that's uh, uh, Boise in December is uh, always going to be an advantage playing a California, Southern California team. Agreed, agreed. Um, all right, Kevin, anything else before we, uh, before we head out today? Uh, no, I just I think – you know, hopefully people keep suggesting ideas that they want to see from us uh, as we still have a couple months left of off-season content and make sure they're following the Get to Know Your Orange Men series. And so we can take a closer look at the Syracuse football 2020 roster. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're cranking along now. We're in the 50s now. But once we get through the whole thing, there'll also be like another run of new guys and, and number changes and things like that. So... Well, it might seem like we're halfway through. We're not even close to halfway through. Right. All right. Well, Kevin, appreciate you hopping on on late notice. I think it was, uh, I think we still had a great episode. Well, thanks for having me and uh, appreciate any anytime. Always happy to come on and talk sports with you. Of course, of course. Uh, that was Kevin. I'm John. Thank you everybody for listening to Troy Newton's An Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on megaphone on stitcher tune in spotify overcast wherever you may listen to podcasts and go orange